Welcome to Conservation Unfiltered, a podcast all about the North American model of conservation and your chance to dive into conversations about trends, research, and outdoor activities. It's time to get wild with the 2021 Conservation Media Award-winning host, Jason Creighton. Let's go back to what kind of started this problem. Everyone wants the perfect tree. You know, it's it flowers, it's pretty, it's got a good shape, it's got a good habit. And the bottom line is, as we've just been discussing, there is no perfect tree. You know, I jokingly told someone one day who called the office who wanted a tree that had nothing that ever dropped from it, and it had no fruit, it had flowers, and what I jokingly told her was, you probably need to clip a coupon and go buy a plastic ficus from the craft store. Uh, the only downside to that is you're gonna have to dust it from time to time. But there is no perfect tree. Every tree has some sort of flaw. Welcome back to the Conservation Unfiltered podcast presented by Conserve the Wild. I'm your host, Jason Creighton, and this is episode number 121, the worst ornamental tree in U.S. history is... Well, this week we're going to find out just what that is. I'm talking with Dennis Patton in what is our now annual Arbor Day special. Dennis is a horticulturalist with the Kansas State University's Research and Extension Program. He has a degree in horticulture, of course, and a master's in education. And all his work with the extension is basically covering home horticulture. Part of that outreach includes writing for the Kansas City Star, so you can read some of his thoughts there. And during this conversation, we're going to be talking about his knowledge of one common ornamental tree, the Bradford pear. Now, unfortunately, this tree has become an invasive tree throughout much of the United States. So Dennis is going to recount the history of the tree, how it became invasive, why it's an issue for native vegetation, and he's also going to give some advice on what to look for if you're looking to plant an ornamental tree in your yard. And throughout the entire show, you are going to hear my personal disdain for the Bradford pear tree. Before we keep going, a real quick question for you. Are you concerned with urban sprawl? Are you concerned with the threat of our increased human presence has put on wildlife and wild spaces? If so, an easy next step for you to try to help with this situation is to visit our Patreon page and become a monthly supporter. If you like this podcast, if you would like to help form a new nonprofit that helps combat and mitigate the effects of urbanization, visit patreon.com slash conserve the wild that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash conserve the wild go visit today and become a sponsor welcome back everyone as what has become a annual tradition like you heard in the intro this is our annual arbor day podcast episode and Joining me today is Dennis Patton. Dennis, how are you? I am doing 
wonderful today. Thanks so much for letting me be on your podcast today. I really appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I read through the wonders of the internet. Uh, you know, you're in Kansas, I'm in Pennsylvania. Through the wonders of the internet, uh, I was able to stumble across uh, an article that you wrote uh, about ornamental trees and one specific ornamental tree in particular. And the disdain that you had in that article for this tree really spoke to me uh, as someone who absolutely hates Bradford pears. So can you give us a little bit of, I guess, to start the origin of Bradford pears? Like they're not a native tree here, which is one of the reasons why I hate them. So how did they get to the United States? Why are they so prolific? You know, they have a long history. Actually, they've been in this country for over 100 years. I think around 1905, 1906 is when they first kind of arrived in the States. As you said, they are non-native. Um, like many of our plants, they are originally native to China, Asia. And the reason many of our, what we call exotic plants or non-native plants come from Asia, China, Japan, is because if you look at kind of the, the nor Northern hemisphere and kind of how the world goes around, so to speak, their growing zones, climates are very similar to the broad swath of the United States of America. And so when plant explorers go exploring China, Japan, Asia is one of those parts of the world that are, is rich with a lot of flora and fauna that will potentially grow here. And of course, you know, we, we've long always known that we tend to lust over things that we don't have instead of appreciating what's in our backyard, in our woods. You know, we'd rather have something that came from Asia. And interesting enough, many American plants are in European gardens because they're not native there. So, you know, it comes around, goes around. But, you know, Interrupt me if I'm going on too much, but they, they originally were, uh, you know, Wuhan region of China. Everyone knows where Wuhan, China is now after now, the last yes. couple of years, <laughs> but that's kind of the region where they were found growing wild there on hillsides, open areas, fields as one of their native trees. And what they originally brought stock over to the United States for was the help with uh, edible pears. Uh, one of our problems in edible pears is a disease called fire blight that kills out the branches, cuts production, kills the tree. So they're looking for rootstock and other breeding stock to um, help combat fire blight. Uh, so then that kind of got shelved. So then kind of fast forward another 40 plus 50 years into the 50s or so. And then, you know, so there's still researchers are still messing around at USDA. So this is United States Department of Agriculture release. Uh, then happened to stumble on this plant um, out in the field from some seedlings they put out because the native ornamental pear, or we also call it calorie pear, is another word you see because it's Prunus caloriana, is its botanical name. Um, they found in, in the native wild, a lot of them have long thorns and fruit, and they're just kind of a nasty, gnarly tree. That's where I look at them for rootstock. But they happened to find uh, a seedling out there that had no thorns, it had really no fruit, it had beautiful flowers, it had glossy green leaves, and it had a burgundy purple orange fall color in a nice kind of uniform upright growth habit. And um, so researchers kind of thought, wow, we have found the perfect tree. It, you know, it flowers, it's not messy, it's got fall color, it looks good in the summer, it grows relatively fast. 
And so along came the variety known as the Bradford pear, which um, kind of became the, you know, as suburbia grew in the 60s, 70s, 80s, you know, it's kind of like you get the all-American dream, you get a home, you get an ornamental Bradford pear. And so it just kind of dominated the market. And so that's how we kind of, I'll stop for there and let you ask any questions, but that's how we kind of got up to the tree coming to the market. And then we can maybe go up and what happened then in the 90s and the 2000s, because that's when the tide started the shift. Yeah, because like you said, it was sort of like the, the perfect tree. You had flowers, you had um, really cool colors in the fall on these leaves as well, but there was no fruit, right? Because, right. you know, like my parents have a dogwood tree in their front yard and there's just little fruit constantly falling. You've got to watch the dogs, make sure the dogs don't eat them. Um, you know, they're causing a mess if they get over into the driveway and, and staying in, uh, you know, the the concrete and things like that, um, getting on my dad's truck, you know, and, and all that stuff. So it, this really was a, a, originally pretty much a perfect tree because it, it wouldn't self-pollinate. Like it was sort of self-sterile, like nothing, mm -hmm. because for those that don't know, in order for fruit to produce, the flowers have to be pollinated, right? There needs to be cross-pollination from another tree or from its own tree. Uh, and this couldn't happen with this tree, right? Right. So that's part of the story I left out. So the, um, the ornamental pear is what we call self-sterile. So as you were just saying, Jason, the pollen from that tree will not pollinate itself. And so you are fruitless. And the other part I left out is once they found this perfect tree, the only way to reproduce it was not through seedling propagation because there's very there's variability in seeds was to clone the tree or graft the tree. And I think most of us know that when you clone something genetically, it's identical. So you get the same basic form, shape, habits. And so every Bradford pear on the market, millions and millions and millions of trees were all genetically identical. So they could not pollinate each other. So that was that here again, that made it the perfect tree, but, but you know, yeah. So let's it, go it, on to that. But how did this all turn to hell? Yeah. Hell in a handbag or whatever mm -hmm. the saying goes. Uh, yeah. So what, what they failed to recognize early on the defect initially we thought of the Bradford pear was that because it had this really nice upright egg shape to it what they failed to realize is that all those branches on that tree originated from one growing point from the main trunk and in the plant world when you have a lot of what we call upright narrow v peace sign like crotches in a tree or where branches come to meet each other the branch angles there's grows what they call a lot of included wood so it's like bark to bark contact it's not solid wood to solid wood contact and so as that tree matured and you got heavy winds or parts of the country that were prone to snow loads or ice loads then those crotches were really weak and that tree would split out some people just say it almost splits like a banana and in many cases after severe storm went through this once upright oval tree was just splayed out and all that was left was the trunk and all the branches were just laying uniformly on the ground around. So they realized, oh, well, the perfect tree has a problem. 
the perfect tree does not have strength in branching. So that became its defect. So then that's when the trouble started. So then researchers went to search for other seedling varieties, other plants that had a better branching habit, better branching structure. So the problem they were trying to overcome was the tree splitting like a banana. But here's the but. So they then introduced new genetics. And so then no longer was the ornamental pear. Now it's still self-sterile, but now you've entered more pollen into the mix. I don't know, maybe you want to cut this out, but you know, they kind of created an orgy of pollen out there. <laughs> and um, the side effect was we started to get fruiting because now they were cross-pollinating because genetically they were different. So, you know, originally we had Bradford. So then came things like White House, Chanticleer, Capital, Aristocrat. There is probably 10, 20 different other varieties, cultivars of ornamental pear out there. They were all clones of each other, but genetically they were all just a little bit different, just enough different that they cross-pollinated. Thus we got fruit. And then we can go to the next part of the story, maybe. Yeah, because that is really when all hell broke loose as far as spread of these trees is concerned. You know, when you have a self-sterile tree that can't doesn't have another tree to cross-pollinate, not producing fruit, you're not you plant that one tree, it's one tree. It's never going to be more. Um, and you know, a lot of people don't don't realize when you think of things like apples and, and pears, really all fruits. The purpose of that fruit is so that that tree can produce more trees, right? Um, so now all of a sudden we now have these little fruits that are being produced on this uh, terrible, terrible tree, as it turns out. And what happens next? So here again, hopefully you're, I'm not going to offend your audience. So this is when the it hit the fan, literally, because what happened is these little fruits on the ornamental pears are probably the size of a, a large pea, small marble, somewhere in there, and the tree can produce hundreds of them. So then, of course, wildlife is attracted to the fruit. And so birds, other animals would come in, eat the fruit, and then they would deposit them uh, all across, well, let's just say all across America at this point in time. I think ornamental pears now are invasive in 29, 30 states, something like that. And so what happened is then these seedling trees started to pop up. Um, you know, in many parts of the country, we deal with invasive honeysuckle that takes out the forest floor, the canopy or the understory of the forest. But the or what the ornamental pear does is what I call more the open lands, the meadows, the roadside, the fence rows. So maybe more the grasslands, you know, that, that type of environment. They, they don't pop up in the woods. They pop up in the open areas because they need sun. And in some of these areas, we're talking about seedlings, you know, the proverbial thicker than hair on a dog's back, um, you know, hundreds of them would pop up. And then, of course, they started then reproducing each other because they're all now new genetic, you know, material. And the other thing that happened, remember, I made a comment real early that initially in the wild, a lot of them had really gnarly thorns and things. Well, now a lot of these seedlings are reverting. So if you go out and try to cut down one of these ornamental pears in the wild, or if your tree died and sprouted back up, you could have long, sharp thorns. Now you also have to deal with on top of 
everything else. And so it's this receding habit into our, well, you know, in some cases, I hate to call them our native lands because you'll find them here in, in the Kansas City area all over the roadside. So you really can't say a roadside ditch is a native area, you know, from that standpoint, but they're, they're choking out whatever vegetation was along those roadsides and, and becoming quite a problem. Yeah. And that's really the thing that I, I, people don't really realize. Like you think like, oh, more trees, that's going to be a good thing, right? Like more trees just naturally occurring. That'd be a good thing. The problem is, is that, as you mentioned, it chokes out the native vegetation in meadows and open fields and grasslands that we have so little of now based, you know, due to climate change, you know, uh, development, um, ranching, all, you know, all the human activities that we do, we mm -hmm. have that shrinking of grasslands available. So, you know, yes, new trees are good, just not this tree, because it's too prolific in the areas that are a little too sensitive. Well, the other thing too, is remember one of the reasons the tree was revered was for beautiful white flowers. And so a lot of people think when now they see this, you know, at least, at least in Kansas where trees aren't as plentiful, maybe as parts of Pennsylvania. And now where you see driving along the roadside, you see these beautiful white pears, they're flowering about the same time as our native red buds. So you get this really nice white and purple, you know, mix on the hillside. You know, people think, oh, they're, they're pretty. They're not bad. They're, they're pretty. Let's enjoy them. Uh, but they don't realize that, you know, really not a lot of our native pollinators, beneficial insects and things really feed on them. Because here again, they're not native to here. So uh, our native uh, insects, beneficial pollinators, bees, whatever it might be. They didn't grow up with them. So it's not really a, a good food source for them. Now they will use the pollen, those type of things. You know, the, the seeds may help feel, uh, feed the birds. I've also read where there's not that much nutritional value in those seeds. So it's kind of like us, you know, gorging on a whole bunch of potato chips and candy bars. You know, they, they may taste good, but does it really provide the food and energy we need to survive? Um, and, you know, that could be said for the ornamental pear out in the wild too. So it's displacing that, that native habitat. So, you know, with that in mind, trying to, you know, especially myself as a person, I, I like to try to opt for more native options and things like that. But before you do that, like you need to get rid of the trees that are there. I mean, how do we do that? How do we, is it literally just going in with like chainsaws or hand saws and just cutting them down? You mentioned the thorns, you know, like it's so I'm sure, you know, mowing with a very heavy duty brush hog might be an issue with tires and things. I mean, what are the options? Well, that, that is the, that is an excellent question. So let's just kind of go over the options. You know, I, I drive to and from work every day on a four lane highway and, you know, KDOT, the Kansas Department of Transportation mows the roadsides and you'll see all these little ornamental pear seedlings that just keep coming back, coming back, coming back and mowing them off doesn't really kill them. Of course, mowing off doesn't really help much of the habitat either because there's no food produced. So you really get back into what are your options? Well, first of all, you got to convince some people that it's a problem. Um, you know, I had my neighbor a few years ago plant one and looked right in the eye and say, I don't really care what you say. It was cheap and it's pretty. So I'm planting it. I'm not cutting it down. Okay, so we got to convince people that, you know, this, what they think is a pretty tree is not really a pretty tree. And then in the wild, you know, where I see, at least here in the Midwest, and I think probably out in your part of the country too, is there's a lot of conservation environmental groups 
that are going out and removing honeysuckle. We talked about that earlier. Now they're going out and removing the ornamental pears. And a lot of uh, states, a lot of areas, I know we just had one here in the Kansas City area are having what they call a buyback program. So if you, uh, conservation districts, you know, state forest service, things like that, uh, will underwrite the cost. So what they're having you do is photograph your tree being cut down, and then you bring the picture in, and then they give you a rebate, they give you a cash incentive to replant a, a more appropriate tree species. The, the problem though, Jason, just cutting the tree down, it's, it will resucker, it'll resprout and grow. So then you get into more of the controversy of, well, how do you prevent that re, regrowth and resprout? Uh, same here again, like the honeysuckle. Um, you know, a lot of conservation groups are not really keen on using chemicals, herbicides, but honestly, if you're going to go to the work, the, the flush, what we call flush cut, so cut it even with the ground, you probably then need to come through and then treat it with some sort of herbicide that's going to kill that root system out. And, you know, it's going to be a slow, painless process because the other, other thing you hear from some people, you know, here again, I, I've been using a lot of old sayings. I'm just kind of a Kansas farm boy, but, you know, well, why bother? The horse is out of the barn. You're never going to get the horse back in the barn, you know, that kind of philosophy. So, oh, what the heck, let's just give up. And I, I don't think, you know, if we really stay on top of it, I don't think we're quite to that point yet, but it's, it's going to be a battle to get them back under control. Yeah, we have, uh, at least in, in southwestern PA, northwestern PA, where uh, I spend most of my time outdoors, uh, honeysuckle, not a huge issue. It's mainly multiflora rose. A very similar story to, uh, sort of similar story to uh, Bradford Pears. USDA brought this over. It was supposed to be this living fence for farmers so cattle couldn't get out. And it was great, except it has this very small hard fruit that birds take and then they deposit elsewhere uh, and it is just prolific everywhere uh, and I'm not big on using herbicides like if there's an option other than herbicides I'm going to, even if it's more work I'm going to opt for that we tried that you know with Mollifloor Rose mowing it down it comes back uh, you try digging it out, but oh boy, if you don't get every single piece of that root, it comes back. Uh, mm -hmm. So we've now reverted to just, you know, cut as much as we can, uh, give it a quick spray with, you know, a herbicide. And really with, with the Bradford pears, the trees that we've taken out, it's a very small amount of herbicide that you're using. It's not gallons, um, you know, and it depends on tree size, right? Like, the bigger the tree, the more you have to use. Uh, but it's not like we're spraying gallons of herbicide on the landscape. Uh, you know, you're just spraying that little bit of stump that you have there so it can get sucked down into the roots. Yeah, that's an excellent point to make. You know, like I said, I know recommending herbicides is controversial, uh, especially talking to conservationists, but you're right. The, the, the products we use are, are applied directly to the cut stump. And you want to apply it pretty much right after you cut the trunk, because you're in some cases on some of these little small trees that may be, you know, finger size to four or five inches, you know, it's only going to take a drop or two of the herbicide mix to put it right on it. So the nice thing is that you're targeting it. You're not spraying it willy nilly throughout everything. And uh, yeah, sometimes you just have to bite the bullet and kind of choose what's worse, you know, letting that pear continue to grow, spread, take over more of our woodlands or our native lands. 
as opposed to uh, to using the herbicide. And you know, I, I working for the Cooperative Extension Service here at Kansas State University Research and Extension. I'm technically USDA employee, so sometimes I have to be a little <laughs> bit cautious. But no, you're right. You know, um, not the bash on USDA. They've done a lot. You know of what? Good. It, it was good intentions, right? Yeah. It just it, the full effects of what you know, of the whole unintended consequences type thing was not necessarily fully fleshed out back in the forties, fifties, sixties, you know, it, it just, the world just was place. Yeah. We just yeah. didn't recognize at the time how widespread this, you know, these plants could be. And, and now we just have to figure out how to come back from that and, and try to figure out how to work to reduce what what's out on the landscape. Well, and this may take a, a little turn here, but you know, you mentioned Multiflora Rose, USDA. You know, the other big kind of uh-oh from USDA is kudzu in the South. You know, that was supposed to be the erosion control product, uh, you know, plant to save us from soil erosion. And then I also have to kind of chuck with the Multiflora Rose because then they got the bright idea to release this mite that caused a virus of Multiflora Roses to help kill it in the pasture lands. Well, unfortunately now that, rose rosette virus has worked its way into the landscape so people who love growing roses in their gardens now have to deal with rose rosette which was a side effect of trying to use a natural predator to control multiflora rose so um yeah good intentions sometimes bad outcomes yeah all right so okay we have we have established that this tree is not a tree you should plant uh whether on the landscape doing habitat work uh or you know, at your house, you know, in your yard, let's go with sort of that route in your yard. Okay. I I'm a homeowner. I want to plant a pretty tree. I don't want to spend a hundred dollars or, you know, a thousand dollars on this like fully formed tree, right? Like I just want to have a nice little afternoon with my son and my wife planting this pretty tree that my wife's going to enjoy that I'm going to enjoy looking at neighbors will like uh, maybe make the neighbors a little jealous whenever it flowers or, you know, it, whenever we get those blooms in the spring, what, what kind of replacements trees could we possibly think of? Well, you know, let's go back to what kind of started this problem. Everyone wants the perfect tree. You know, it's, it flowers, it's pretty, it's got a good shape, it's got a good habit. And the bottom line is, as we've just been discussing, there is no perfect tree. You know, I jokingly told someone one day who called the office who wanted a tree that had nothing that ever dropped from it, and it had no fruit, it had flowers. And what I jokingly told her was, you probably need to clip a coupon and go buy a plastic ficus from the craft store. Uh, the only downside to that is you're going to have to dust it from time to time. But there is no perfect tree. Every tree has some sort of flaw. You know, it drops fruit. It drops some twigs. But I think what you have to do is the old saying, look for the right tree in the right place. And there are some native alternatives. I know here in the, in the Midwest, the Kansas City area, you know, redbud is one of our native trees. Um, Crabapple, mallet species. Uh, there's a lot of great different crabapple species out there, which are, depending on how you classify a native plant, are somewhat native. And, and that's a whole nother conversation is what do you, how do you classify a native plant? But let's not go down that rabbit hole. But, um, you know, that's another one. Um, you know, there, that's the problem. There just aren't a lot, especially when you get into the smaller, you know, kind of, you know, think a tree that's in the 15 to 20 foot range, 
you know, we kind of get limited a little bit. There's, you know, there's a Native uh, American fringe tree to part of the country uh, that's out there. And of course, you know, what's what's Native here again is going to vary on your region. So, you know, working for Cooperative Extension here at Kansas State University, I always tell you to reach out to your local extension office. We're in every state across the country. So there are Penn State University. It's associated with land-grant university. You know, here in the Midwest, we got Iowa State, Nebraska, Oklahoma State, you know, uh, even on the coast, you know, you've got Oregon State. And, and all those universities have the recommended tree list. Now, is that tree list always up to date? You know, I've been going around around with our K-State people because on one of theirs, they still have ornamental pair listed. Well, they haven't updated lately. So when we get it, we cross it out. But, you know, I would reach out and, and try to find something that's suited for your area because I, I think the better suited the tree is, the better we're going to do. And you mentioned, you know, the word a few minutes ago with the, the changing climate, weather patterns. That's just throwing a whole nother wrench into uh, being able to grow quality plant materials. Yeah, I mean, I think the real takeaway for everyone is if you're thinking about planting a tree, the worst thing you can do, in my opinion, I'll say in my opinion, is to just go to Lowe's or Home Depot or Menards or whatever big box store you have, look at the trees, look what's there and just take something home. Like if you're going to plant, if you're going to plant something that's going to hopefully be around for 15, 20, 30 years, the, the life of you in that home, take the time to, to do a little bit of research. And quite honestly, it's not like you have to spend hours and hours of of, of your time researching trees. Uh, very simply, make a call to, as you said, the extension services, you know, here in Pennsylvania at Penn State or, you know, at Kansas State. And all you have to do is ask them, right? What is a native, a good native tree, pretty tree that I can plant? They're going to give you some options. And from there, you can look at them and see, do I want one with white flowers? Do I want one with, you know, purple flowers? Do I want one with some pink flowers? And you can start to, you know, start your research there by making that phone call first or checking online if it's up to date. Um, and, and it's really going to be better overall for the ecosystem because, you know, if my neighbor at our cabin property uh, is going to plant this fancy ornamental tree, I hope it's something native because if it's not, it's going to end up on our property eventually. We know the other thing here again, kind of along these same lines um, on recommended trees where we kind of just keep creating a problem after another problem. You know, we fall in this trap of, ooh, a tree comes in vogue. You know, we, we can trace this history back, not just, you know, from the invasive standpoint of the ornamental pear, but we trace back what Americans have done with like shade trees. You know, in the 50s and 60s, ooh, American elm, it was the most wonderful, beautiful tree lying street. Well, along comes Dutch elm disease. You know, and now we fast forward to everyone then replace their uh, elm trees with ash. Now we have emerald ash borer moving across the country. And I don't know about your part of the country, but here, when ash went out of oak, everyone started planting a red maple. And it was red maple after red maple. And here again, they're all genetic clones, you know, so we're losing genetic diversity right and left in the plant world. But then, you know, in parts of uh, the Kansas City area, Overland Park, where I live, there's areas that are 30, 40%, nothing but red maple. Uh, the home, home development I moved into, 215 homes, every home got a green ash. So now we're back, you know, 30-year developments look like, you know, ground zero. 
uh, we're, we're starting over. And so that's what I always challenge people is sometimes they go for what they've heard about or what's being pushed in the trade or what's economical. And I always try to push someone to go to something that's outside the box, something that's not up and down your street all over, because then we're keeping that diversity around. I mean, you look at the forest and it's not 100% red maple. It's, it's a mix of 10, 12, I don't know, you name it, 15, 20, whatever different species. And that's really what we need to be creating in urban, suburban America. And that's not what we're creating. We're creating these monocultures uh, that lead us down the road to potential problems. Yeah, I mean, I'm all for uh, planting trees. You know, the old saying is the best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago. The second best time is today. Uh, but with that, there needs to be like a little asterisk to that. We, we can't just plant trees for the, the sake of trees. We need to think about what type of trees, as you said, have a mix. Um, and then also where we're planting those trees. You know, I mean, I can plant all kinds of trees where I live, but there's a lot of forests around. So is it really necessary for me to plant a tree? In a more urban center? Yeah, we should definitely have some trees, but it, like you said, shouldn't all be the same type of tree. It shouldn't all be, um, you know, the same age of trees as well. That That's not, you know, we need to try to structure what we're doing and plan better within our urban centers and our even our suburban centers as well. Right. Yeah. If you start looking around, you should, you know, look into a, a city or an area or, you know, take our public parks, for instance, you know, you should see trees of all ages in there. You should see trees that just got planted to four, six, eight, 10, 12, 20 inches or whatever in trunk diameter, because if they're all the same age, same size at some point in time, you know, trees are a living thing, just like humans, they're going to die. And of course, the other thing people think is, oh, that tree lives for 200 years. Well, that's 200 years under mother nature's care. That's not 200 years in hard compacted clay where you trench every couple of years for a new fiber optic cable line or you're applying pesticides, or you got lawns or whatever, you know, that tree in the woods that may live 200 years, if it leaves the live 50 years in suburbia, it's probably a, a long life for that tree. Uh, so you're right, it's back to your know, right, right tree, right place. And I always add in the right way too, when it gets back to actual planting of the tree. Yeah, that is super well said. And uh, I think I'm just gonna leave it there. I, I think this was good information. And I like leaving with that right tree, right place and, and, you know, in the right area, you know, treating it the right way. I really think that's, that's a good thing to end on. So Dennis, thanks for joining us. Uh, I really appreciate it. I hope this changed some hearts and minds about what kind of ornamental trees they may decide to plant uh, at their homes. And uh, again, thank you for coming on. Hey, thanks for having me. It was uh, good to have a friendly discussion uh, over uh, something as ordinary as the ornamental pear. <laughs>
and all I want to do is just take a chainsaw to all of it and then spray it with some herbicide so it can't sprout back up. Unfortunately, I don't have the money, time, or the permission to do that on all the property I would like to. But if you have a Bradford pear in your yard or on your property, do the right thing, kill it. If your neighbor has one, convince them to kill it. Maybe convince them that you can kill it for them. And if you're interested in these different alternatives, like Dennis said, it sort of depends on where you live in the country. The best way to go out and find what would be the best pretty tree that you can plant in your yard that would be native uh, is to talk to your local extension. And really, that local extension is going to be through any state land-grant university. Here in Pennsylvania, it's Penn State University. So reach out to them, reach out to the local uh, extension office, and they will guide you. They will help you out. Uh, and they are a tremendous resource for all that kind of thing. This week is Arbor Day. Make sure you celebrate accordingly. If you can't plant a tree, that's okay. Trim some trees. Do what you can to even just get outside and just observe the trees that you see around you and learn to appreciate them. And that falls right into what I ask you to do every week. Get outside, take someone with you, and stay wild.